So this is a casual liturgy. And just by review, the term liturgy refers to a form of worship or a, a formula for how to do something. Uh, in churches, it's, it's how you do the service. Um, we're talking about that term or using that term sort of as a way of explaining what we're doing in this class. There's kind of a, a liturgy we're going to follow for this class for this season. Um, we're not going to, in case you, this is your first Sunday, we want to know what, we want you to know what to expect today. So we're not going to throw loads of theological or historical information at you, as is sometimes the case in a, in a Church of Christ Sunday school class. But instead, we're going to practice together for this season a liturgy of devotional practices designed to draw us closer to God and to each other as the body of Christ. So we'll spend most of this hour reading and pondering Scripture together, praising God in song together, confessing our sins together, exhorting one another, praying together, um, confessing what we believe together, and then, time permitting, talking together about the experience that we've shared. Now this week will be a little bit different. This week we'll be using some brief periods of silence between our practices um, to give us a little bit of space to reflect on what we're doing, what we've just done, and to meditate on how we practice our faith. Like I said, we'll save some time at the end for comments and, um, and feedback. To begin today, let's start by reading our public confession together. You should have nearby, if not already in your hands, sort of a, a syllabus for what's going to happen in class today. So um, please feel free to read along with me as we utter this prayer together. Let us confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. As Matt said, we'll be introducing some pauses. So I'll read Isaiah 58 and then pause for 30 seconds or so before I uh, give a little um, devotional thought on it. I think of it kind of like uh, when we if you wash dishes. I'm a superior husband, so I do that sometimes. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you got a little, little let, uh, let a little bit of the, uh, the Dawn detergent sit for about a minute in the pot. And then it takes a lot less elbow grease to scrub it clean. So we're going to hear scripture, and then we're going to let it sit and kind of soak in it for a minute uh, before I uh, begin to teach on it uh, so that it can do its work uh, before I try to do what little I can do to, um, uh, to help it sink in even more. 
So this is Isaiah 58. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I, have cho- that I chose? A day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. we listen to Isaiah 58, it's clear that more important than the question of whether our worship is instrumental or a cappella is whether our worship on Sunday mornings is consistent with our lives. More important than whether we sing the old hymns or Hillsong is whether our worship of the loving God shows up in our love for others. More important than the style of our worship 
is the substance of our lives. Can we sing of grace and not extend grace? Can we sing of righteousness and not pursue justice? Can we admit in song our poverty before God and then harden our hearts to the poor in our midst? Can we proclaim the joy of the Lord and then yet cast a black shadow across those around us? Isaiah would say no. As I look around this room, I thank God for those of you whose lives match your Sunday morning worship. I thank God for those of you in this very room who work, as Isaiah says, to loose the bonds of injustice, who share your bread with the hungry and bring the poor into your home, for your light shall break forth like the dawn. I thank God for those of you who satisfy the needs of the afflicted, and you should know that your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom will be like the noonday. The Lord God will continuously satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And especially for me, as I think about my own children, you shall raise up the foundation for many generations and be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Now we'll read Psalm, Psalm 112. Psalm 112 has been labeled by many biblical scholars as a wisdom psalm, along with others, like its companion piece, Psalm 111, because it expresses in carefully constructed language what the good life looks like for the people of God. Now that careful construction is much more evident in Hebrew than it is in English. Because in Hebrew, this psalm has 22 lines, and each line begins with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, kind of like a crossword puzzle or a word game. When you translate it, all of that disappears. But those 22 lines, even if we can't see that particular part of the game, do help us understand something that's a constant in our, in our human lives. Because I think if we listen to it, this particular psalm is an answer to a question that all of us ask ourselves, I think, way too often. And that question is, how can I improve my standard of living? If you're much like me, the answers I come up with or think about are almost always financial in nature or about how I can find more time for myself. But let's read this psalm. As I read it out loud, think about it as an answer to that question. How can I have the good life? How can I improve 
my standard of living? The answer. Praise the Lord. Happy are those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in His commandments. Their descendants will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. They rise in the darkness as a light for the upright. They are gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with those who deal generously and lend, who conduct their affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved, and they will be remembered forever. They are not afraid of evil tidings. Their hearts are firm, secure in the Lord. Their hearts are steady. They will not be afraid. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have distributed freely. They have given to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn is exalted in honor. The wicked see it and are angry. They gnash their teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked comes to nothing. If we think about that psalm and the answer it gives us to the question we always ask ourselves every day, it's humbling to realize that its answer is God's answer. And it's a reminder to think differently about what makes us happy healthy, wealthy, and wise. We'll pause for a few minutes and then we'll sing together. Somewhere around 80, 50 or so, 51, in that general area, Paul on his second missionary journey brought the gospel to the area around Corinth in the country of Greece. And uh, only a short time later, he's hearing of problems in that church, and hence the first letter to the Corinthian church. And I'll be reading from chapter 2 and from the New Living Translation. We were talking about in the elders meeting Thursday night, uh, Lee Kemp was leading some thoughts from the theology committee of the elders and said how 
we, we don't hear a consistent reading of the Bible or the same version anymore. When I grew up, all you heard was the King James. And so you, when you memorize 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself, and that's S-H-E-W, show, thyself to be approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. That's the wording you, that everybody kind of heard, and that was the Bible. But it does help to read it from a modern language translation as you want to get the thoughts that, that Paul is trying to get across and something that they, we, we may understand a little better. So this is a modern language translation but I think reasonably accurate to the original as far as I know and what I've studied about this version. So in the first chapter, he's heard about divisions. He's trying to teach, he's telling them about the, the simplicity and the importance of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. And here goes chapter 2. <coughs> when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Yet when I'm among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak, speak of is the mystery of God, His plan that was previously hidden, even though He made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit, te- His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given us by the spirit. Using spiritual can't receive these truths, from, but people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach Him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ.
appreciate that Hilton put this in its context. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, if you don't hear it in its context, could very easily be misheard. Uh, when Paul says in verse 15, uh, your translation will say something like, Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they themselves are subject to no one else's scrutiny. We, if we pluck this out of context, sounds like Paul might be saying, We don't need teaching. Uh, it's just me and my Bible, and the Spirit. Anything more is just worldly wisdom, and I'm not subject to anyone else's scrutiny. But that is far, far from Paul's point. Otherwise, why would he be teaching them right now uh, if he didn't think that something like that uh, was necessary? But as Hilton said, the chapter before this, Paul is speaking of the wisdom of the cross. For Paul, uh, the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. And to the world, that is foolishness. He says a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So when Paul says uh, something like those who are spiritual discern all things, he's not saying lowercase s spiritual, those who have this kind of new agey spirituality, don't need any teaching, it's just them and God. It's capital S spiritual. Those who have been shaped by the Spirit, by God's grace, can see the wisdom of God as Christ crucified. And we no longer see the world the way uh, that others do who haven't been shaped by the Spirit. When he says they discern all things, he's not saying just you and the Spirit can figure out all the truths of the universe. All things that are necessary for seeing that Christ crucified is the wisdom of God for us. And when he says we are subject to no one else's scrutiny, he's not calling for some sort of individualism. I don't need your scrutiny. I've got it all figured out. I can answer every doctrinal issue. That's not what he's talking about. In context, he's saying, when you have been shaped, your mind has been shaped by the Spirit of God so that you see wisdom as Christ crucified. You don't need the scrutiny of the world who see the cross as foolishness. It's so important that we grasp this. For Paul, Jesus is the wisdom of God for us. And if we are wise, we follow him as he embodies what we read in Isaiah 58, the true worshiper of God, even if the world thinks that such a compassionate, humble, and cross-shaped life is foolish, impractical, or out of touch, we who have the Spirit are not subject to such foolish scrutiny. Because we, thank God, have the mind of Christ, not because of our own cleverness, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the grace of God. Matthew 5, uh, beginning with verse 13 through verse 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light (coughs) shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. you all are experiencing this, uh, but my soul longs for this kind of practice, where we uh, read large chunks of scripture and let it speak to our hearts and lives. A psalm, Old Testament reading, a gospel, a New Testament reading, it's like sitting down to a four-course meal. Uh, It is food for my soul uh, just to attend to the words of our Lord. Here, he he looks around as the Sermon on the Mount is beginning and declares that people he's looking at, his new disciples, are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill. And he explains what he's doing with these metaphors in verse 16. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Salt, light, city, When we live the way that Jesus is calling his people to live, it is like um, light to the world. It it declares a greater truth. The cross-shaped life that he's calling people to. The Isaiah 58 life uh, that Isaiah was calling, uh, the prophet was calling the Israelites to, apparently is to shine like a bright light in a dark world. And the early Christians... Those first few centuries of Christians who adopted this way of life were persecuted, were treated or seen as deviants often by their culture, and yet their numbers just swelled and swelled. They multiplied at an exponential rate. Why is it uh, in the midst of persecution that people continued to join the church in those first few centuries? Well, it would seem as though these communities of love where barriers were broken down and there was a truth about a new new kind of love, a grace, beautiful hope, a world-changing love was speaking uh, in a powerful way. It was like light in the darkness. 
in 1 Corinthians 2 that we just read before this, Paul says that it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit, not our own cleverness, that reveals the wisdom of the cross. And here, Jesus is saying, lives uh, that are shaped in such a way, true discipleship lives, shine like a light. And if we combine these two together, we might hear that one of the ways that the Spirit opens the world's eyes to the beauty of what Jesus offers is through the church, through a church that really lives out this good news that he calls people to. And the rest of the sermon, or this uh, section that we read, uh, as Jesus says, he doesn't come to abolish the law and so forth. He's not saying that we Christians have to keep all the Old Testament commands. We know that from the rest of the New Testament. Uh, But it's like he's saying what the law had been pointing to is coming to its fullness in Jesus. And he's going to spell out the trajectory of where that's going as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount in the next weeks. uh, So that our righteousness, when we live that way, might surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. When such is the case, when we're living Isaiah 58 lives, when we're living the wise way of Jesus, our lives become salt and light, good news in a broken world. But if we don't, if we lose our saltiness by ignoring Jesus' teaching with lives that don't match our singing, then we are like salt that's lost its saltiness. And Jesus warns us what that's fit for. is not here to do the uh, reading of the Apostles' Creed, so Rachel is going to be doing that for us. She's going to be reading an excerpt from a book on the Apostles' Creed um, that we're going to be uh, bringing into this uh, practice that helps us uh, understand why we're doing this, why it matters. On the eve of Easter Sunday, a group of believers has stayed up all night in a vigil of prayer scriptural reading and instruction. The most important moments of their life is fast approaching. For years they have been preparing for this day. When the rooster crows at dawn, they are led out to a pool of flowing water. Then they are asked a question. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? 
They reply, I believe. And they are plunged down in the water and raised up again. They are asked a second question. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit, and Mary the Virgin, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was dead and buried and rose on the third day alive from the dead, and ascended in the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead? Again they confess, I believe, and again they are immersed in the water. Then a third question. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? A third time they cried, I believe, and a third time they are immersed. When they emerge from the water, they are again anointed with oil. They are clothed, blessed, and led into the assembly of believers, where they will share for the first time in the Eucharistic meal. Finally, they are sent out into the world to do good works and to grow in faith. That is how baptism is described in the early 3rd century document known as the Apostolic Tradition. It points to the ancient roots of the Apostles' Creed. The Creed comes from baptism. It is a pledge of allegiance to the God of the Gospel, a God who is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God who is present to us in the real world of human flesh, creating, redeeming, and sanctifying us for good works. It is often said that creeds are political documents, the cunning invention of bishops and councils who are trying to enforce their own understanding of orthodoxy. In the case of the Apostles' Creed, nothing could be further from the truth. It was not created by a council. It was not part of any deliberative theological strategy. It was a grassroots confession of faith, It was an indigenous form of the ancient church's response to the risen Christ who commanded his apostles to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28, 19-20. By the second century, the basic form of the creed can be found in widely dispersed Christian communities. This rule of faith was educational. It formed the basis of catechesis for new believers. In the period of preparation for baptism, new adherents to the Christian faith would memorize the creedal formula and would receive instruction in its meaning. The threefold confession of faith was to be written on the heart so that it could never be lost or forgotten. That way, all believers would have a basic guide to the interpretation of Scripture and even illiterate believers would be able to retain the substance of the biblical story. They would see Scripture as a unified witness to one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they would see the created world as the domain of God's activity. God creates our world, becomes incarnate in it, and will ultimately redeem it fully in the resurrection of the dead. That is how the Christian mind was formed by the ancient catechism. It is a summary of Christian teaching as well as a solemn pledge of allegiance. These two functions of the creed can be distinguished but not separated. Catechesis is necessary so that we can make the baptismal declaration with understanding and with genuine commitment. And in turn, the baptismal confession orders our thinking about God and the world. Even today, the creed provides a framework strong yet surprisingly flexible for Christian thinking and Christian commitment.
Okay, and if everyone will join me in saying the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So now is the time for us to talk together. If you have comments or questions, um, it's, it's a time for us to, to share those things. It's a different kind of class. It's an experiment. Um, so we really do like to know what you think about what you heard today, uh, about how things are going. Will it? Well, it's interesting. Rachel was asked to read that about the Apostles' Creed. Because that's what I grew up with in the Methodist Church. And when we joined the church at age 12, and everybody took the class, we had to memorize and were instructed on the. So that was when I've you know, been reciting and hearing this Catholic when I learned, well, that meant universal. Yeah. No one had told me that until I got into the class. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, I, and Josh alluded to this in uh, a previous semester, but, and then this was in uh, Rachel, what she read. It's simple, but it's so powerful. So a summation, and I would just love to see us, especially with our young people, and we need to do this at home, um, just emphasize these points. It, it does cut through a lot of things that, that have sort of glommed onto how we, how different people practice their Christian faith in different traditions and different denominations. But, but I think I would agree with, with you, Will, that it kind of cuts through all that stuff down to some really, really basic, fundamental truths that are, are essentially the common denominators of everything else that we believe and whatever else we construct on top of it. <coughs> I mean, it was always, growing up in the hardcore Church of Christ, we just simply refused to, to even talk about the Apostles' Creed. And now looking back from this perspective, I wonder how much damage it does not to have words like that in my head as 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 deeply engraved as the words of the Lord Lord's Prayer, which I I can still do that without without cheating, but I kind of <laughs> wish I had the Apostles' Creed in my head, just as deeply carved. I would agree. Yeah, I, the the attachment of the Apostles' Creed to baptism, I think it's such a beautiful thing. 
Like, you know what you're getting into. You know you're dying to and, and, and being raised to. Uh, and the language there, but it's our Pledge of Allegiance. Oh, man. It just seems like there's, there's a, something lacking uh, when we don't um, assure a kind of robust rootedness um, attached to becoming a disciple. If only. I feel like it's a missed opportunity. Uh, we assume you just need forgiveness and you're going to heaven and you figure it out the rest of the way. But it's a new way of life. And we've got to know what, what it is we're signing up for and how the world is forever changed to us. And this is like a the cliff notes to that. Josh, did you mention that at one point you do this every morning with your children? Yeah. One or the both or whatever on a regular basis, so that's integrated just into their under own faith. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we we read a little scripture, we say the creed, and we say the Lord's prayer. Uh, and so they're still little right now, so they're just kind of memorizing it. Mm -hmm. But with the Lord's prayer, we're building in pauses, so they know when we say "Our Father," they they pause a little bit and, and think about God is my Father, who is in heaven. He's not just like Daddy; He's also Almighty. Uh, and so we're, I'm slowly kind of, we're slowly trying to train them and to see the world this way. And then as they get a little older, we'll do kind of line by line through the creed. This is what it means to confess that. No, we're not confessing Roman Catholic. I love that you point that out, you know, uh, when we say the Holy Catholic Church. But we'll talk about what it means to see the world this way. And hopefully when they're of age and they say, Daddy, I want to get baptized. This is, this is what you're getting baptized into. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? Are you sure to pledge your life to this? I like what you said about the pauses that you're doing with your kids so they have a chance to think about it. Because I find that's really true for me, too. It's nice not to race through things. This morning, for example, it just dawned on me when you were reading the Isaiah passage. Um, it sort of is, a, is an argument against fasting as we know it. And it redefines fasting. And it dawned on me that the way it redefines fasting as doing justice, as feeding... Fasting is really feeding the world. It's how the people of God deliver to the world those things that God wants to give to the world. Justice, mercy, um, shelter, food, clothing for the for the fatherless and the widows. To me, that was really remarkable, especially with the whole diet faith, the fad of intermittent fasting. It's easy to kind of cheat and think, well, I'm fasting today. I really want to lose weight. I can pretend it's for really holy purposes. <laughs> But fasting for God looks looks very very different than simple abstaining from food. It looks like it looks like yeah. feeding the world um, the love God has given yeah. to us. Yeah, it's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. Other comments or questions? No? And that passage I mentioned to Josh when I saw it was a passage this week has shown up two or three times in the last few weeks and things I've been doing and think, okay, what is God telling me that I keep seeing this passage? But we do think of it as just not eating ourselves. But think through the ages how many times in order to do what Isaiah 58 is calling us to do, it might have meant fasting ourselves because we have so much that you know, we can eat and give to others, and maybe they didn't have enough to eat themselves and give to others. Yeah, taking, taking your food and giving it away. <coughs> that's, that's really 
Well, and, and the other image too with, with fasting, when you read the passage about you know salt and light, there's that food connection. I didn't have enough breakfast, so I guess I'm thinking about food. <laughs> but the other connection was light, because in both of those passages, what we do is, is compared to being being light in a dark world. And that just kind of came through for me in a more clear way. Well, you want to close us out with the oh, Alex? Sorry, I think we're. Well, let's end. I'll pray this prayer over us. Thank you again for being here today. O Lord, set us free from the bondage of our sins and give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I pronounce that word. Um, yes. So I have been